This morning, we are beginning a sermon series on the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, for those of you who have not read it or studied it before, is the most theologically sophisticated book of the entire New Testament, arguably the most theologically sophisticated book of the entire Bible. It was written by somebody who was incredibly well-educated, um, incredibly well-informed. As the name suggests, it was written to people of Jewish origin who were followers of Christ. And so if you remember the story, when the gospel started being proclaimed, it was proclaimed first to the Jews in Jerusalem, and then uh, scattered out from there, most of the apostles went to preach the good news to the Jewish people. One, Paul and, uh, and Barnabas, went to the Gentiles. And so there were Gentile converts who were coming into Christianity who had no Jewish background. But the foundation of the early church was actually people who were Jews who then became followers of Jesus, believing that Jesus was the Messiah. This book was written to Jewish Christians in the first century. The great mystery of Hebrews is that nobody knows who wrote it. We know they were incredibly well-educated. We know that they uh, were incredibly well-connected. But because it was, it's written actually as a sermon rather than a letter, it's in our Bible as a letter, but it's written as a sermon, there is not the traditional... Um, uh, most of the epistles of Paul, for example, says, I say, I, Paul, to the church at Corinth. And so we know who it's from and who it's to. Hebrews has none of that. The language is not that of Paul's. And there are certain hints within the text that make us think it was not Paul who wrote it. Nobody in the first 300 years of the church thought that Paul wrote this letter. It is a great mystery who did. In fact, if you would like to get yourself a PhD in theology, you just make an argument for who wrote the book of Hebrews. Because you can find arguments out there in print for almost every single named person that we have in the New Testament, except for maybe Herod and Judas. Um, everyone else, we can find arguments written somewhere that this is the person who wrote the book of Hebrews because the final answer is we don't know. Um, when you get to heaven, you can ask Jesus who wrote the book of Hebrews and he will tell you. What we know now is that this is the most theologically sophisticated book of the New Testament, written by what appears to be the most educated writer of the New Testament, using language that is far more uh, classical and far more sophisticated than any other book we have in the New Testament, and employing um, logic and employing uh, a literary sense of somebody who is not only very well-educated, but also very Jewish, somebody who knows the Jewish scriptures by heart, what we would call the Old Testament, what Jewish people would have just called the scriptures. So that's what we know about the book of Hebrews. The other thing we know is by context clues, we can see that it was written sometime before the destruction of the temple. So for those of you who are not aware, the, the temple that stood during Jesus's day was destroyed during an uprising against the Roman Empire in 66 AD. Um, so, and that was a huge, huge event. Um, most of Jerusalem burned and the temple, which was this massive, massive building project, extraordinarily huge beautiful building burned to the ground um, this happened before that event and so the guesses of the date are sometime in the 60s AD which means we're dealing with the first century of Christians first converts to Christianity and yet so people who are living in a time when it's starting to be hard to be a Christian, but it, the persecution has not yet reached the fever pitch that it would. So there will come a point 
years down the road where Christians are being martyred, where Christians are um, being persecuted left and right. We're not there yet, but if you read the book of Hebrews, you can find from the context clues that it is written to people who are starting to need encouragement about following Jesus. It's written to people who are starting to feel pushback in their lives in some capacity. So when you read this book, imagine yourself as a first century Jew who is in some part of the Roman Empire. Maybe you're in Rome, maybe you're in another part of the Roman Empire. You're not probably in Jerusalem. You're probably out in the Roman Empire somewhere. You have started following Jesus, which means you have left the Jewish community and you've joined the Christian community, and you are starting to wonder if that was the right decision. The final thing we need to say before diving into this is that for all its theological sophistication, Hebrews was not written to people with doctoral degrees. This was written as a sermon to ordinary people who needed encouragement. And so because of that, it is not off limits for those of us who do not have doctoral degrees. It's gonna take us some work to figure out what the author is saying, but it is, not, it is not off limits from us. This was not written to people um, who are extremely educated. It's written by someone who's an extremely educated to ordinary people. It's a sermon delivered to give them encouragement in their ordinary, everyday faith walk. So with that introduction, what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through the first four verses of the book. Now, in Greek, these are all one sentence. Remember I told you this was the most educated writer of the New Testament. This is something that um, educated writers would do is they would write extremely detailed, beautiful poetic first sentences that would not only set up the themes of the rest of the book, but, but give you hints along the way about where the author was going in the rest of the book and do it in an incredibly beautiful and artistic way. And that's what we have. The first sentence of Hebrews is what is in your Bibles for verse, four verses long. When we put it in English, we find a need to make it into four sentences because there's no way that you would be able to follow it in English without thinking it was the most terrible run-on sentence you'd ever heard in your entire life. And so what we're reading in these first four sentences sets up the rest of the book. So if you are interested in following along, if you want to turn to Hebrews, we're in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Now, remember, you are a Jewish person in the first century. You have left the faith family that you grew up with because you have been convinced that this new way is the way. You've become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. You've become convinced that this is God's promise being fulfilled. You have joined a Christian community which likely meets at a house somewhere to read scriptures and break bread and encourage one another. But something has happened in your life where you are beginning to wonder if that was the right choice to make. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe the cost of being uh, kicked out of your previous faith community is just too much for you. I don't know what it is, but something has happened to make you wonder if the, what you gave up to follow Jesus was really worth it. And you come to your house church and the person in charge opens the scroll that is being passed around all of the house churches and starts to read the sermon that has been written to your congregation. And here's how it starts. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors 
in many and various ways by the prophets. I'm going to pause there. What the author is starting out with is what everybody knew, which is when God started to lead his people, he did so by way of prophets. You think back, when God led the people out of slavery in Egypt, he used Moses. He would speak to Moses, Moses would speak to the people. When God wanted to warn them about um, their, th that they were going to be exiled if they did not change their ways, he spoke to Isaiah, Isaiah spoke to the people. Throughout the Old Testament, God did not leave his people without prophets of some sort. There were always people to whom God was speaking, through whom God was speaking, and that was how they heard the word of the Lord. The Old Testament is not entirely, but a large portion of the Old Testament is the words of the prophets through whom God spoke. Now, what is a prophet? A prophet's a preacher, and everybody recognizes that a prophet is human, and everybody recognizes that a prophet is fallible, and everybody recognizes that when one prophet goes, another prophet's going to come up, and if this prophet becomes unfaithful, God's going to call another prophet, and it is not the prophet that is worthy of your attention, it is God who is giving the message through the prophet that is worthy of the praise and the worship, not the prophet themselves. That's what, that's the background that the author is alluding to. So long ago, God spoke through prophets. But in these last days, that term last days does not mean that the world's going to end tomorrow. It means we've entered a new era. So the belief was that when the Messiah came, a new era would begin. And that was, that's what he's alluding to. In, these, in this new era, in this last day, he has spoken to us by a son. The son is what the author of Hebrews is going to spend the rest of the book talking about. And what he first wants to make sure the, the listeners understand is that the son is not just another prophet. The son is not just a nice guy. The son is not just a good person. The son is not just another human being through whom God worked. The son is categorically different than anything they have seen before. Why? Let's keep going. Whom he appointed heir of all things. The heir was a very important concept in the ancient world. The heir was not just the person who would take over after the father died. The heir was the person who held a measure of the father's authority even before the father died. If you couldn't talk to the father, you could talk to the heir, and the heir would speak for the father. If you remember in the story of the prodigal son, the father says, son, all they have is yours. The idea is that the heir shares whatever belongs to the father. And so the first statement that's being made is that the son shares whatever belongs to the father. Now think with me, what's the difference between a prophet? Does a prophet share everything that belongs to the father? Of course not. The prophet is a human being that is used for a particular period of time. The son shares all that belongs to the father. He is created heir of all things. That's the first statement. The second statement through whom he also created all things. Now we are going even one step above and beyond sharing all things, as in the Son, Jesus, worked with God to create the universe. This is theology that is also echoed in John 1. Those of you who are here on Christmas Eve, remember the last scripture we read, when all the lights are out and we are praying that nobody catches their hair on fire with the candles this year, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with the word. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing was created that was created. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son, is an agent, was an agent of creation, coexistent with the father at the beginning. What this author of Hebrews is doing is slowly setting up tier after tier after tier, and we're going we're gonna to get deeper about how different the Son is from every other messenger we have seen. Every other messenger is a human. The Son not only is heir to the kingdom, actually worked with God to create the universe. Now, if that is troubling you linguistically, think about this image. Imagine there's a father-son team who own a building company and are building a house. And the father owns the company. His name is on the company. He sits in the office and manages all the work. And the son is the one who goes out to the building site and actually oversees people and makes sure that the house gets built. When that house is built and someone asks who built the house, it is completely true if you say the father, because he owned the company, he had the money, he directed the, the operations. It is also true if you say the son, because the son was there actually getting things done. I do not know the inside story about how creation worked between father and son, but the image that we're getting is that there was something happened whereby the father created and the son created, and all of the wide universe that is beyond even our wildest imagination then came into being. So through whom he also created worlds, he is the reflection of God's glory. Y'all, we're only halfway through the second sentence. Stay with me here. He is the reflection of God's glory. Now that word is a hearkening back to the Shekinah glory of God that came in the tabernacle. So here, here's the story if you forget it. God created the world to be his home. God was with us for a period of time. God was with humanity walking in the garden. Sin separated us from God. Once humanity became fallen into a sinful state, God could no longer be with us because um, he would have consumed us. The holiness would have consumed the sinful humanity. And so there was a separation necessarily because of sinful humanity. God kept trying to come back to his people. In fact, the whole story of the gospel is God coming back to his people. And one of the first steps was God creating a way in which his presence could dwell with his people without consuming them. And that was in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that he instructed them to build um, with the giving of the first covenant. And in this tent, the presence of God would come and would be with his people. And they knew the presence of a God had come when they saw the Shekinah glory descend on the tent. Now, when you read that description about what that glory is, you see a lot of words describing what people obviously had no words to describe. It's a cloud. It's bright. It's shiny. How would you describe the glory of God if you saw it? I don't know. The visible glory of God comes to the tabernacle, and then that visible glory of God goes to the temple when the place of worship moves from the tabernacle to the temple. What Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus was the visible glory of God, which is exactly what John said, the, the prologue of John, that God, the word became flesh, and tabernacled, dwelt among us. The presence of God was with us in the tabernacle. The presence of God was with us in the temple. The presence of God was with us in Jesus. 
And what this author is doing is he's building up and up and up. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not just a good guy. Jesus was not just somebody who did good things. When we look at Jesus, we see the face of God. We see visibly that which has been invisible to every other generation. We see visibly that which was only a bright cloud to the previous generations. We see the full glory of God and the exact imprint of God's being. That word imprint is the word that um, they would use for a tool that made an image of another tool, so uh, that made an image of something. So think like a stamp. You have a stamp. You can use the stamp to make an image of what is on the stamp. Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God. Jesus is God made visible to us, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. So we've started with he is the heir. He is uh, entitled to everything God has. He is co-creator with God. He is the reflection of God's glory and the very exact imprint of God's very being. And he not only, um, his work was not only creation at the beginning, his work is the continual sustenance of all life. The author is getting us farther and farther and farther away from these prophets because he wants us to understand that what we are dealing with in the sun is categorically different than what we saw in the prophets of old. Um, sometime on uh, social media this week, I saw one of these memes. I see these every now and then where they're... Um, two people looking at the cross, and one person says, well, what did he do? And the other person says, he just told people to be nice to each other. And I was like, y'all, read the Bible. I mean, that sounds good, except that Jesus wasn't a kindergarten teacher. Like, the Romans were too busy to go around crucifying kindergarten teachers. If Jesus had done nothing more than say, be nice to each other, the Romans would not have had time to execute him. I promise you. And yet, this conception that Jesus was just a good guy, that Jesus was just a great teacher, that Jesus was just a nice person, was as prevalent in this time as it is in our time. And this author of Hebrews is coming back and saying, oh, no, 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 no. What we saw in Jesus was the exact representation, the invisible made visible, the untouchable made touchable, the eternal made temporal, the glory of God come in person standing in front of us. He goes on, we're like halfway through the sentence. You see why I see this as the most theologically sophisticated book of the New Testament? We're halfway through the first sentence, y'all. He goes on to say, in this next few words, this next half of a sentence, he is going to summarize Jesus' earthly life like this. When he had made purification for sins. That's the summary of his earthly life. And so the image is Jesus coexistent with God, co-creator with God, heir of all things, exact representation with God, in his earthly life, debased himself, came down to a position lower than the angels, debased himself even further, went down to the lowest point of humanity, 
and by that debasing of himself made purification for the sins of humanity. You remember I said at the beginning, God could not be in our presence because his holiness would consume our unholiness. The whole problem of us not being able to be in the presence of God is that our sinful nature made it impossible to be in the presence of God, much the way um, it is impossible for wood to be in the presence of fire without being consumed. That was the problem. And yet when Christ, when the Son descended to earth, he made a purification for our sins that fundamentally solved the problem through his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, all of that solved the problem that was started back in Genesis 3. So he made purification for our sins. We're going to get into that more later in the book. So just put a pin in that. And then he ascended again and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so the movement that he talks about, the, the last part of the sentence, he talks about the movement of Christ's life, of starting as pre-existent, second person of the Trinity, co-existent with God, descending in mortal life to humanity, living, dying, being resurrected again, and then after that resurrection, ascending back to a place that is superior to the angels. In the entire next chapter, he is going, the, the author of Hebrews makes this argument about the Messiah being superior to the angels, by drawing from all of these Old Testament messianic texts, primarily from the Psalms, that everyone agreed was about, were about the Messiah. And so he draws all of these proofs from these Psalms, saying we should have known all along that the Messiah was supposed to be superior to the angels. The Messiah was supposed to be not just another human being, another prophet. We just didn't see it. So this entire introduction starts off with this awesome, extraordinary claim. Jesus not only is not just another person, Jesus is nothing we have ever seen before. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, coexistent with the Father, co-creator with the Father, came to earth, accomplished what humans could not, ascended back into heaven and holds a position that no human ever could, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Period. That's it. It's the end of the first sentence. You've made it through the first sentence of Hebrews. Congratulations. Why did we start that way? Okay, I want you to think back to what I told you. You are Jews in the first century. You are following Jesus, but something has happened to make you wonder if following Jesus is the right choice, <laughs> is actually worth it in your life. And you come into your house church and this person opens a scroll and they start to read and they read this and you are going to get from this book, from this letter, from the sermon, the encouragement you need to keep going. Why? What is happening? You see, what's happening here is the author is fundamentally making this claim. If you understand who Jesus is, you will never fall away. If you understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you will not fall away. If you know in your heart of hearts the world as it is, the cosmos as they are, and what is at stake and what is actually happening, you will not be tempted away because you will know how precious a thing it is that you have. 
I wanna give you an example that is altogether less serious than the one that is given to us in the gospel of uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. So a couple times in my life, a few years ago, I um, attempted to do dry January. Now I don't drink a whole lot, but I like having a glass of wine when I come home. And so I was like, my friends are doing dry January. I'm gonna do dry January. I'm gonna do this. And I made it like three weeks. This was like five, five years ago. I made it like three weeks. And like I said, I don't drink that much, but I like having a glass of wine. And now sometimes my job is rough. And so I got home one night and I was like, I'm just not gonna do it. I'm gonna have a glass of wine halfway through dry, dry January. I never succeeded with a dry January until, do you wanna hear what got me? Getting pregnant. And then I discovered that I could not drink for three quarters of a year successfully and happily. And what changed was, the, was not my desire and it was not the taste. What changed was my knowledge of the consequences and my knowledge of what was actually happening. Now what is going on here is not me wanting to re relax after a hard day of work. What is going on here is me potentially endangering the life of another human being and knowing the consequences, nothing could have made me touch a drink in those nine months. Um, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is if you know the consequences, if you actually know what is really happening here, you will not fall away. Because the truth of the matter is, even though you, because of where you live and because of who you are, you will likely not ever lose your life for the faith. Could be wrong, but likely not. You will likely not ever even lose your business or your house for the faith. But the challenges that will come before you are in some ways worse because they are more insidious. You who are committed to follow Jesus, you have, who committed your whole life to follow Jesus, will find yourselves in times when sometimes you turn the other cheek and you get slapped for it. You forgive your enemy and you find them walking away laughing in your face. You commit yourself to follow Jesus by committing a portion of your time to go out and serve the poor and you turn around and you see another person who has not committed a portion of their time to go out and serve the poor and they're using that time to go take the dream vacation that you want to take. Or perhaps you've committed a portion of your income to generosity and you are um, sacrificing for that and you turn around and you see someone else who isn't committed like that portion of their income to go out and have a great time. Or perhaps there is a part within you where you have committed yourself to be loving and gracious to your family, but you just want to lose it because it doesn't seem worth it. However you have committed your life to Christ, there are times in this life when you're going to wonder if it's worth it. However you have committed your life to follow Christ in the model of Christ, there, there are times in this life when you are going to wonder is this worth the sacrifice I'm making? And in that moment, what the author of Hebrews says is if you understand who Jesus is, you won't even ask that question. If you understand who Jesus is, you will not fall away. If you understand what God has done in Christ, you will not fall away. If you understand the sacrifice God made for you, you will see that any sacrifice you can make in return pales in comparison to the sacrifice that God has already made for you and to the glory that is to come for all people, if you actually understand, then you will run the race that is set before you. And nothing will be able to separate you 
neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor powers nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor angels nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because if you understand who Jesus is, it will forever change everything. And that is what Hebrews is about. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the book. He starts here because he wants us to understand who Jesus is. And the rest of the book, we are going to see some of the fiercest exhortations to faithfulness that we see in the entire New Testament. We're going to see here some of the most encouraging words. And we're going to hear over and over and over again the message of what God has done, because if the message of what God has done really gets into your soul, it will change everything. And if you understand, if you understand, then not a thing in this world could tear you away from the path you are on. The path that leads to eternal life. So if you haven't, I encourage you this week, read a couple chapters. See where we're going. We're going to spend six weeks. We're going to hear this message. We're going to wrap our heads around this proclamation of who Christ is and what Christ did. And we're going to hear these ancient words over again to us. Do not fall away.